0: If you have a Bible, please turn with me to 1 Samuel, chapter 18. 1 Samuel, chapter 18. We're continuing our study this summer on the early life of David, a man after God's own heart. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the heart of David, that as Saul had disqualified himself from being king, God went to choose a king after his own heart. God looks not at the, out, at the external things. He looks at the inside, and he found his man. We saw the heart of David. And Last week, we took a look at the grand old story of David and Goliath, and we considered more than anything the vision of David, that his was a God-entranced vision of life, that when Goliath, that goon from Gath, came down and was challenging the Israelites, and they, in their fear, did not know what to do, it was David who interjected God into the equation. He had a vision of a God who was the living God, and who was high and lifted up, who didn't fear Goliath's great size, because remember, God doesn't look at external things. David had a great faith in God who had delivered him from the paw of the lion and from the bear and could and would deliver him from that Philistine as well. And we saw the clash and the stone and the taking of Goliath's sword and cutting off his head. This morning, we look at the friend of David. I don't know how much it is at the heart of the story of David but it is certainly part of it. We pick it up in chapter 18 and we're going to just glance around and I'll tell you the broad story and then we'll consider a few things together in verse chapter 18 verse 1 now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul this was after David killed Goliath and he was brought Before Saul, with head of Goliath in tote. Now it came about when David had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took David that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. If you know the story, Jonathan shows up a couple or a few chapters earlier in chapter 14 as a valiant warrior himself and a seemingly God-fearing man himself. But as he saw God anoint David as the next king in Israel, Jonathan, unlike his father Saul, felt no jealousy about that at all and had no envy in his heart at all, but rather, as verse 1 tells us, loved David as himself. Chapter 19 will tell us that Jonathan delighted in David as he came to him and Jonathan stripped himself remember Jonathan is the son of Saul he is in some ways the next in line to the kingdom and yet he strips himself of the robe that was on him gave it to David with his armor including his sword and his bow and his belt and so many words David you will not have to fight me for this position I understand what God is doing, and I want you to know that I am with you and that I will help you. And it says in verse 3 that Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as as himself, probably expressing to him again, you won't have to fight me for this. I'm on your team. I'm with you to help you. And David probably in return, as we'll see later in the story, says to him, I will remember you and your family when all of these crazy purposes of God come to pass. Well, Of course, David is on the fast track within Israel. That makes Saul very, very angry and suspicious of him. And in chapter 19, King Saul is looking and commanding that David be put to death. And you see it in chapter 19 now Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants to put David to death but Jonathan Saul's son greatly delighted in David so Jonathan told David saying Saul my father is seeking to put you to death now therefore please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself i will go out stand beside my father in the field where you are and i will speak with my father about you if i find out anything then i'll tell you so Jonathan is out to protect David from the madness of his father Verse 4 Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him Do not let the king sin against his servant David Since he has not sinned against you and since his deeds have been very beneficial to you For he took his life in his hand and struck the Philistine And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel You saw it and rejoiced Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these words. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as formerly. It wouldn't take long, though, for Saul to change his mind. In fact, the very next paragraph. When there was a war again, David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with a great slaughter so that they fled before him. Now, there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the harp with his hand. Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear but he slipped away out of Saul's presence so that he stuck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. And so, although Jonathan had pled to his father not to kill him and though Saul said, we won't, not long after Saul then tries to kill him himself and David has to flee. But eventually in chapter 20, David comes back and he finds Jonathan and he says, Jonathan, What's up with your father? He's after me to kill me. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? What is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? He said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. David, you must have some wrong information. If my father was still out to kill you, I would know about it. Verse 3, yet David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight, and he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, or he will be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. No, Jonathan, he is after me still. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. I'm here to help you, David. I'm on your side. And so they devise a plan whereby Jonathan will go and, if you will, sound out his father, Saul. See what his father Saul is thinking, what his plans are concerning David, and that's basically all of chapter 20, and you come to verse 30. Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse, meaning David, to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now send and bring David to me, for he must surely die. So Jonathan goes to sound out his father, and he finds that Saul is intent to kill him, to kill David. And so as they had devised their plan, Jonathan lets David know that he needs to flee because his father's intentions are evil. In verse 41, when David heard this news, he rose from the south side, fell to his face to the ground, and bowed three times. That was, he had come to meet with Jonathan. And he bowed down, and they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the more. Jonathan said to David, Go in safety inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord. This is probably going back to that covenant that they had made. David, you're not going to have to fight me for this. I'm on your side. I'm on your team. I'm here to help. And Jonathan, when all of these crazy plans of God come together, I will remember you and your family. Jonathan said to David, go in safety inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord will be between me and you. And between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he rose and departed while Jonathan went into the city. As far as we know, Jonathan and David never saw each other alive again. David fled into the wilderness, was on the run from King Saul. And when you get to the end of 1 Samuel in chapter 31, verse 1, Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel were originally just one book, Samuel. And so in the very next chapter, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, when Jonathan's death and then Saul's death, his suicide, were reported to David in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 17. Then David chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and he told them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar, Your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Listen, it'll be part of the story that we'll look at over the next couple of weeks. Though Saul was intent to kill David, David understood that for this time he was the king. And he would trust God and he would not take his own vengeance upon the king. He understood that he was God's king. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice. The daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. O mountains of Gilboa, that's where Jonathan and Saul fell dead. Let not dew or rain be on you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life and in their death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O oh, daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How have the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? Jonathan is slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, brother, for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. How have the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? John or David is reflecting upon and mourning the sacrificial, selfless, loyal love of his friend, Jonathan. And a little bit later in the story, David will remember his covenant and his promise. Saul or Jonathan will have a son who is lame, Mephibosheth is his name, and David will take him into his house as if he were his own. David and Jonathan often looked to as great, great friends. I think it's providential that this fell upon Father's Day. Men, I want to talk to you. And ladies, I think everything that I will say here applies to you as well. But if you'll forgive me, I just want to talk to us guys. Men, you and I, like David, need empowering friends. Because life is a team sport. You and I are not meant to live it on our own. But we have to be careful in the choosing of our friends because if not, as the Bible says, do not be misled, bad company corrupts good character. It also says though that he who walks with wise men will be wise. And so we are encouraged to find some wise, encouraging, empowering friends. My good buddy John Bryson says that God has rigged our lives in such a way that we can only live at a high level and stay at a high level with a band of good brothers and sisters around us. Life is lived best in the company of good friends. Remember the Apostle Paul writing to young Timothy told him to to flee youthful lusts And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Timothy, you're going to have to renounce your youthful lust, and you're going to have to pursue that which is good and noble. But, 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 young man, do it with others. If you and I live life without empowering friendships. It can be dangerous. Maybe you've heard me talk about these things before, but here we go again. They're good reminders. If we try to live life on our own, disconnected with empowering friendships, we run the risk of a warped perspective on life. You've heard the proverb, 1412, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end therein is death. There's a way that seems right to a man. When left to himself, in his own stuff, apart from the wisdom of God and apart from the fellowship of wise friends, there's a way that seems right. We've got it figured out. We know what life is all about. We know what we should value. We know what we should spend our time on. We know what we should commit ourselves to. There's a way that seems right to a man apart from the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the fellowship of good friends. We know what biblical manhood is all about. We know what, it's a, what it looks like to be a godly husband. We know what fatherhood should be. We know what goals we should have for the resources, the money that God has entrusted to us. We've got it figured out. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. You've heard me quote him a hundred times. Prof. Howard Hendricks at Dallas Seminary would look at us and say, my greatest fear for you is not that you will fail. You're all too smart. You will succeed. My greatest fear for you is that you will succeed at all the wrong things that you will climb your ladder only to get to the top and find out that it's leaning against the wrong building. If you and I separate ourselves and live life alone, we risk a very warped perspective on life. Secondly, apart from empowering friendships, there's the real danger, fellas, of loose living. Proverbs 18:1 He who separates himself seeks his own desire and he quarrels against all sound wisdom. All sound wisdom says don't separate yourself. Don't live life alone. Stay connected. Stay in community. Stay, he who walks with wise men will be wise. That's what sound wisdom says. But he who separates himself does what? Seeks his own desire. Mm. When you and I are disconnected from the wisdom of God and the wisdom of empowering friendships, the chances of you and I going to, if you will, bad places with our sin only increases. Whether it's our lusts, or our greed, or our gluttony, or our pride, or our sloth, or our anger. When we're just living life all by ourselves, we are left to our flesh, the allurements of the world, and a very, very busy devil who longs to take every one of us down. And our lust will take us to the wrong place and our greed will take us to the wrong place and our anger will take us to the wrong place and our sloth, our laziness can take us to the wrong place when we are separate. We don't have those other voices calling us away from our own desire. We also, disconnected from empowering friendships, there's a loss of motivation for the noble things of life. Men, a couple weekends ago, when I was at the uh, family Life weekend to remember family con- or marriage conference, most all of the sessions are with the men and women together, but for the last session, they split you up men in one room, women in another, and it's awesome. The very first thing the speaker did when he got up and he just had the room full of men, he said, listen, guys, I promised you at the beginning of this thing, we're not going to break up into small groups. I'm not going to bring you up here to share your heart with anybody or anything like that. He said, but I do want you all to stand up, and I want you in the next 20 seconds to give as many of these as you can. I want you to high-five as many guys as you can and tell them it's good to be a man. And it is, but you would never hear that in our culture. It's good to be a man. It's an incredible stewardship from God. Now we're called to live our manhood under God left to ourselves and apart from his wisdom and the fellowship of noble men, we will not live a noble manhood. Many of you have been through the men's fraternity type of curriculum and we talk about a definition of manhood. Number one, noble men reject passivity. Oh, how much does that live in the heart of a man? It goes all the way back to the garden. You can eat from any tree of the field, but from this one, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Adam, you got it? Yes, sir, got it. And then the serpent comes along to Eve and Eve takes it and she gives it to her husband who was with her. He was there. Why didn't he step in? Why didn't he play an active role in protecting his wife from the serpent from the very beginning of the whole mess of human history? The passivity of men. Reject passivity, accept responsibility. Not only are we meant to reject the passivity that is so alive in our hearts, but we are to accept this responsibility that God has given us to live a noble manhood that loves our wives and nurtures our children and serves our church family and lets our light shine before men throughout the world, wherever God calls us. Reject passivity, accept responsibility, lead courageously. That God has within the home and within the church called upon men to lead to reject passivity, to accept responsibility, to lead courageously, to invest eternally. To not just live as Jesus would say, for the stuff of earth. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where thieves break in and steal and where moths eat it up and rust destroys but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where thieves cannot break in and steal, where moths do not destroy, where rust doesn't have its way. That kind of vision for life is not championed in our culture. Everywhere we turn, it's a different kind of message. What God calls a man to is hard. It is like swimming upstream, and the easy thing to do is just go with the flow, to quit moving ahead into that kind of noble manhood. There is a loss for motivation of these kinds of things, because that's just the default when it gets tough. But when you're connected, when you have some friends, 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, encourage one another and build each other up. There's a threat of character corruption. We already noted that. Be, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good morals. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools comes to ruin. The Bible says much more about this kind of thing. In Proverbs 27, verse 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. All alone There's no sharpening, but with a friend, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. It makes you better, more prepared for the task that God has called us to. I don't have time, but I'm going to share it anyway because it's kind of funny. Uh, just the other night, Friday night, we hosted four of the Pine Cove counselors all week long, as uh, did the Skeltons. And Friday night, the the gals came over, we had dinner, and then we went up to Ritter's uh, Ice Cream Custer way up north on Fry Road. We asked the Skeltons to be there with their counselors, and they came over there. And then uh, Chris Dammel showed up as well. He was going to bring the boys, but then he didn't. And so this was really good for me because I'd been with me and my wife and my three girls, plus four more girls all week long. And so it was fun to be able to sit down with Kyle and with Chris. And if you've ever been with Chris, you know that Chris is a master question asker. And so just to get the conversation started off, he said, all right, guys, to within one or two years, when do you think you're (laughs) going to die? And so we talked about our own death and when we think it might happen. I chose 81 for myself. Um, Sorry, babe, but that'd be a pretty good life, I guess. But that led us into talking about death. It led us into talking about, though, um, that day's coming. And what will it mean for our wives and for our children and by that time for our grandchildren? So we had a chance just to talk about that. had coffee with another buddy on Saturday morning. And we just talked about the insecurities that we feel when trying to serve God and love our families and the rest. And we just found out, you know, we're big, strong guys, but we're just as insecure as anybody else. We talked about what it looks like to love our wives and our kids and the like. Iron sharpening iron. You can't do that guys without friends. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. It's Ecclesiastes 4. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Most of y'all know that Ryan Backey and I climbed to the top of Mount Rainier last summer. And we were roped in on that final push to the summit, and good for Ryan, because I had to pull him all the way up the mountain. And on the way down, Ryan kept falling into crevasses, and thank goodness he had a buddy there, because he would be at the bottom of a crevasse still if it wasn't for me. You're welcome, Ryan. No, but we helped each other up the mountain. And when we did fall, he laughed at me. When when he fell, I would help him up. That's just the way Ryan encourages you and helps you. Come on, Mitchell. Get up. I told him the other day, three people in my life call me Mitchell, and he's one of them. Those words are scary. Woe to the one who falls and he doesn't have anybody to lift him up. Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times. What that means is a friend loves not just in the good times, but also in the bad. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. There's nothing like a good buddy when the going gets tough. I read this blog this week. Scripture says a friend loves at all times. A brother is born for a time of adversity. I've heard it said a true friend walks in when everyone else walks out. There's something about the fact that when your life is an absolute mess, it serves to purify not only your inner life, but it also clarifies so many things about the relationships you have. Some will see your mess and begin asking you obnoxious questions, seeking to provide some kind of theological or philosophical explanation as to why God appears to be getting you back, or something like that. Think Job's friends. Others will find you in the gutter, see the blood and pus, and pass by on the other side because they can't fathom God's call on them to inconvenience themselves, stop what they're doing, get their hands dirty, and become an active participant in the healing of your life. Still, there are those who instead of questioning or ignoring your pain, will actually deride you, shame you, insult you to your face, compounding the fracture and heartbreak. I don't know which of these experiences hurt the most or if it is even possible to know. Here's what is sure. The immeasurable amount of gratitude you feel for the friend who knows how to show up the right way, how to handle not knowing every detail of your struggle, offering their own presence as you face the dark night of the soul, eager to listen to the silence with you. When that person comes to mind, you don't just enter. They don't just enter your mind. They become part of your soul. And it is then that your soul fills with the peace that surpasses understanding. That person is your friend because they're acting like Jesus. A friend loves at all times. A brother is born for adversity. One more Hebrews, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love in good deeds. Friends want the best for each other and so they think about it. They consider how can I stir up my buddy to be better, to love, and to be filled with good deeds. I got more, but it's time to go. So I'm gonna close with a couple things. I've mentioned this book time and time again. I finally decided just to pull it off the shelf. It's called The Pauline Circle. It's written by renowned New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce. And it's a simple little book about all of Paul's friends. Neat little book. I wanna read you the very beginning and then the very end. If however we think of the Pauline circle, the evidence for its membership lies plentifully before us in the New Testament, both in Paul's own writings and in the Acts. Paul attracted friends around him as a magnet attracts iron filings. His genius for friendship has been spoken of so often that it has become proverbial, almost a cliche in fact. There are about 70 people mentioned by name in the New Testament of whom, of whom we should never have heard were it not for their association with Paul. And over and above these, there is a host of unnamed friends. He appears to have had the gift, moreover, of readily winning the friendships of non-Christians like the Asiarchs and Ephesus and the centurion, Julius. Although he was nothing much to look at, he plainly had that warm and outgoing kind of personality which draws out people's goodwill and affection. The other side of the coin is shown by those who could not stand him at any price. People were rarely neutral towards him. And then he closes the book. These friends and co-workers, hosts and hostesses had no other motive in being so helpful than love of Paul And love of the master whom he served. They knew that in serving the one, they were serving the other. The last thing they thought of was that their names would be put on perpetual record. Indeed, that was the last thing that Paul himself thought of with regard to his own name. But he recorded his gratitude to them all, and their memory lives on. Not only in the pages of the New Testament, but in the Christian names borne by so many people ever since, in all parts of the world, Lydia. Priscilla, Phoebe, Persis, Mark, Luke, Timothy, Titus. Why are these names still in such widespread use? Because certain people who bore these names in the first century AD were friends of Paul. And he set down his appreciation of them in letters that he wrote. And his letters have been the salt of immort- had the salt of immortality in them. So we read his letters, and the faith and kindness of those friends of his are remembered afresh. And their example remains powerful. All that to say that even Paul, Apostle Paul, Evangelist Paul, Church Planter Paul, Theologian Paul, was a man of many, many friends who was never alone living his life. Always a buddy or buddies there with him. Men, if you're not already, get your wife and sign up for a community group. Go to a men's Bible study. We've got the Astros game coming up on June 29th. We're going to go eat around 5 o'clock or so, right down across from the stadium, and then 7.15 first pitch. We bought 30 tickets, about eight of those are already accounted for, so there's 22 tickets left. You can go right now, redeemercommunity.life and you can get one of those tickets and join us for that night. On Saturday, July 13th, we're gonna have a men's breakfast, seven to 8.30, right here. It's a great opportunity just to come and to meet some new friends or to deepen some old friendships. On Sunday, August 4th in the evening, We're going to go down to Top Golf and just have a great time together. And then that following Saturday on August the 10th, we're going to have a men's muster. And we're going to encourage all of us to muster on that day, to come together. It's mustering of the soldiers, if you will, getting all the guys together to call us up and to send us out into a noble manhood for the sake of our wives and our children, for our church, and for the world. David had a good buddy. His name was Jonathan. May God give us some good buddies as well well, that will love us at all times through the thick and the thin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we pray, think of what a friend we have in Jesus. He who knit his soul to us, who delighted in us, who sacrificed for us, who selflessly gave himself for us, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being found in the likeness of men. And being found like that, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What a friend we have in Jesus who loved us in our worst of times. Thank you for his life for us, his death for us, his resurrection for us, his present intercession for us, and his promises to one day come for us. What a a savior, what a friend. Lord, if anybody here today does not know of him, your son, the Lord Jesus, who did that, might you open their hearts now to see your great love for them and that they would trust in Jesus, believe on him for the forgiveness of sins and for a new kind of life. And Lord, I pray for all of us, the men, the women, the children, the young students that are here. Might you be gracious to each and every one of us and give us a good friend, if not many, and help us to be good friends to others, to love them, to encourage them, to challenge them, to speak the truth and love to them, that we might Um, glorify you and be a blessing to those in our lives. And we'll pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.